0: Well, if you haven't already, please take out your sermon notes. There are sermon notes in the bulletin. And then, if you haven't already, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. This is a text of Scripture that we're coming back to this week. We started studying it last week. If you look at your sermon notes, the theme of this passage is how to think about church leaders. What an exciting theme. <laughs> I look at it and I recognize and I struggle because I say to myself, you know, we work verse by verse, word by word. Maybe if it was a, um, just, you know, a theology or methodology of me to just like, okay, let's try to find something that's really going to hit them. You know, something that you're all going through. And I don't know what you're all going through. Some of you could have had the worst week of your life. You could have had problems with your spouse, problems with your kids. You could have had problems with your health. And those things are all pressing on you. And you're coming this morning and you're thinking, why do I need a message on church leaders? And now this passage is great because it's theology. And it's a passage I said last week that is sometimes even mistaught because it does talk about the servant leader It does talk about how we handle the Word of God as stewards. We'll talk a little bit more about that, recapping. It has some deep theology, as we'll get into it, about judgment. How is me understanding how to think about leaders so critical? Well, it's because, obviously, God knows that this is going to bring peace to a church. It's going to bless you because you get the right pastor who gives you the right information when you are going through a a problem with your spouse or a problem with your children that matters all for the world and let me tell you this morning I was I got an email or somehow I, I clicked on it and it was like like 50 church leaders that had failed morally spiritually and I thought it was just like one or two or maybe even like ten and i started going through these and it had the stories and sorry if i can find the link i'd give it to you but it was i went through 10 and then i thought well this is at the end of it and then i went through 20 30 40 i got up to 50 church leaders in the past 20 years alone, that were moral fail failures, you know, stealing money from the church, doing all kinds of bad things. And it was interesting for me, the majority of them had bad theology. And, I, and the thing I always share with you, bad theology leads to bad living. So how to think about your church leaders does make a difference And who your pastor, who your elders, who your deacons, who your Bible teachers are, does matter from that standpoint. And so I thought, as we remember the context this passage is how to think about church leaders to bring about unity for the church. Because for those of you who remember chapter one, the apostle Paul said, you know, I hear there's quarrels among you, you know, and that basically there's divisions. And from chapter one, verse 11, I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. There are fights. Now, fights, people like flock to fights. Thought maybe we could put the, pit the deacons against the elders this morning and have a little fist fight no you okay we got to remember the reality here is that the church was literally fighting over this i don't know what in the world they thought you know apollos might be more handsome than paul paul we think is bow-legged and balding and you know maybe barnabas had a greater oratory if he was one of the guys whatever it was they were fighting over this And Paul brings up this theology of saying, look, instead of just saying, I want there to be peace, he wants them to understand the gospel and how church growth occurs and how spiritual growth occurs and how spiritual rewards are given out. And so all of this is still part and parcel of that context. And as we wrapped up chapter three, he gave three commands about how to think about the gospel now we're getting two more to think about how to think about church leaders and this is critical because people do go askew on how to think about leaders this week as i said i was at the IFCA convention and i heard something i've never heard we were somebody was talking about um how sometimes people go askew on thinking about their their pastor their leader and this illustration was brought up using John Piper, and it, this is not against John. John Piper did nothing wrong in this, but listen to this. This man was talking like, to a, like an elder in his church, and he said something like, um, you know, John Piper said, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And the elder turns to the man and says, you know, that's a great quote from Piper, and he said, he goes, you know, that comes right from Hebrews. And the guy goes, no, 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 no. Piper said that. Piper said that. That's, what, that's why it's true. And the man, the elder comes back and says, no, don't you understand that that's from Hebrews chapter 11? And the guy didn't even know it. He was so fixated on his leader that he had an askewed view. And, and I wouldn't want you to ever have that. You guys, I always beg you, I want you to know scripture. I want you to be, be, to be focused on that. Pastor John MacArthur in his commentary said this about this passage. He said, A popular game played by many Christians is that of evaluating pastors. All kinds of criteria are used to determine who are the most successful, who are the most influential, who are the most gifted, the most effective. Some magazines periodically make surveys and write up extensive reports, carefully ranking the pastors by church membership, attendance at worship services, sizes of church staff and Sunday school academic and honorary degrees, books and articles written, numbers of messages given at conferences and conventions and so on. As popular as that practice may be, it is exceedingly offensive to God. 1 Corinthians 4, 1-5 focuses on the true nature and marks of God's ministers. It sets forth the basic guidelines and standards by which ministers are to minister and to be evaluated. It deals with what the congregation's attitude towards the minister should be and what the minister's attitude should himself be. In short, it puts the minister of God in God's perspective, and Paul makes it clear that popularity, personality, degrees, and and numbers play no role in the Lord's perspective, and that they should play no role in ours. They should play no role in yours, how you view your pastor. And so um, we started looking at this last week, and this is how to think about your church leaders how to regard them you look at the very first command let a man regard us in this manner it's literally this is how you're to think and you know if um you cue the lights i i used a real recap of um the illustration i had last week i called this uh, an evaluation gone bad and the reason i'm tying this in is because this is about a the pepsi taste challenge and the idea here where the link is for a message about a sermon uh, about a pastor is that is that sometimes people look with taste towards their pastors and who in the world can tell you what your taste should be but that's in essence what God's doing here so here's this illustration if you weren't with us in the 1980s there was this thing called the Pepsi Taste Challenge and I'm just really quick and it was this promotion by pepsi to try to get people to start purchasing because that's ultimately what they wanted they wanted you to purchase pepsi stop primarily purchasing coke the majority of people in the nation the market share for coke was through the roof and so pepsi came up with this taste challenge and it swept the nation for those of you who weren't alive in the 80s or maybe you were young in the 80s you would really go to stores and grocery stores and different places and they would set these things up it was called take the pepsi taste challenge and, and what happened is, is that over and over and over, no matter where this was going on, Pepsi was beating Coca Cola. And because of this, this is what happened. Because Pepsi was beating Coca Cola, obviously people were buying more Pepsi. People who were working for Coke were losing their jobs. And, and eventually, because it's like this blind taste test, People were choosing Pepsi over Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola got to the point where they stopped making the regular Coke. It was that significant. These blind taste tests, people would even do them in their home. That's why I showed that. And then you would get these little stickers. I took the Pepsi Taste Challenge, okay? It became so popular. It was on the cover of Time Magazine. And then as we said, Coke stopped making their product for a brief time. But what had happened was was that coke really was still preferred the taste challenge was wrong and if you um, were alive in that time when they stopped making coca-cola people started calling up coke like crazy and coke was like how can this be how can people be wanting our product when they're not buying it anymore and there's been studies on this and and basically, when it finally, when they finally ended making the Coca-Cola, 30,000 people started calling Coca day. Think about that number. And Coca-Cola finally said, wait a second, we're missing something. And they were able to quickly piece it together that the evaluation was wrong. And just as a note, this was so significant. For those of you who were here last week, this is just a repeat. That Peter Jennings broke through a tv show general hospital and said we have a major news announcement not that the president shot not that we've landed on the moon not that you know we've gone to war but we've got a major news announcement coca-cola's coming back okay there was a senator you can get the lights that went on the senate floor and he made an announcement coca-cola's coming back and and As I said last week, Coca-Cola couldn't understand what was going on initially, and they hired psychologists, they hired counselors, they did extensive surveys, like, are these people nuts? Because we're losing the Pepsi taste challenge. And the answer is is that basically they found out that the taste challenge was skewed because you're only taking like two ounces of Pepsi versus maybe a five to eight ounce glass glass. Because Pepsi tastes sweet, and it's really good in two ounces, but you take an entire can, and it has a different effect on you. And you say, okay, well, what are you trying to say here, Mike? I'm saying is, most people don't think that they need to be taught how to take a Pepsi taste challenge. You think, I'm smart enough, I'm an adult, I know how to think, I know how, what I like, I know my preferences... But here's the reality. God here is saying, in some situations, your preferences have got to be oriented with mine. And this is what way I want you to think. And I want you to think about pastors and, and church leaders in a certain way. So look, verse 1, let a man regard us in this manner. Okay? So sometimes, you know, people might say, well, I've been to church. I've been to, going to church for 30, 40, 50 years. Well, have you come across this passage? And this is exactly how you have to evaluate the us. And the us were the apostles at this time. But we know it's applicable for pastors and elders, deacons, Bible teachers. See, in verse 1, that little word, us, it's very important that we get this. And the idea here is think this way. We said servants of Christ, someone that is like a maid or a butler for Christ. This isn't the word for doulos. It's um, of a, like, a slave; it's more of servant, the butler, someone who's working for Jesus Christ. And we said they had to have the character of Christ, and they had to do what Christ wants. And then the stewards is that they're managers of God's word. And so God, the Father, was references the mysteries of God. We went through that. They have their responsibility, as the Apostle Paul will tell us in the Pastoral Epistles. Faithful men are to get the word and pass it on to other faithful men, men who are the leaders in the church, and we're to handle accurately the word of God. We're not to Change the message. And then we said in verse 2, in this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy, faithful, dependable. And there were some verses I wanted to read even last week. This idea of being faithful, being dependable weighs heavy always on me should weigh heavy on every elder, pastor, um, anywhere, because we have to be faithful. And this is why we said, as you learn these characteristics and you see it in your pastor, you see it in your elders, it's something that you want to have too. So I can see how somebody can take this passage and say, all right, I don't think they need to know about how to pick a pastor, which that shouldn't be because you have to drive, but let's teach them about faithfulness. And so you pluck this one verse out, and you, you give all these verses about faithfulness, but remember, this is how you have to think about your pastor so that we have unity in a church, your church leaders. Now, faithfulness, listen to the Proverbs 25, verse 13, like the cold of snow when the time of harvest is a faithful messenger who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. And I think about the fact that when I get up to preach that there should be no cringing, that all of a sudden I'm going to open up you know, some secular book and we're going to teach on that for the next 35 minutes. That there should be like, oh, I, I, I can come to church and I can trust that we're going to get the word of God. Now, Obviously, that, there's great application where anyone in your life, you have faithful people in your life, it greatly refreshes you. Proverbs 25, 19 says, like a bad tooth and an unsteady foot is confidence in a, faithful, a faithless man in time of trouble. Uh, isn't that true? You have people in your life you can't depend upon them. How It's like a bad tooth. Man, I hate having a bad tooth. And I had a bad tooth for two years. Dennis couldn't figure out what in the world was going on. I couldn't eat on that side, drink on that side. Oh, golly gee, it's horrible to have a bad tooth. You've got people in your life that aren't faithful, then you've got problems. And it's in daily irritation. And and boy, you take that to your pastor and it, it gets magnified. You believe me. So this is what God is saying. And we said that this was a positive command because he says, this is the way you're thinking. This is the way you've got to think. Now he comes from a negative standpoint. And the command isn't going to come until verse five. But it's like, this is what you're not to do. And I sometimes think not to do commands, negative commands are easier than the positive commands because positive commands are like very broad scope. But negative commands are like, okay, just this one thing. And the one thing is in verse 5, you're going to see, don't go passing judgment. Both of these are present tense imperatives, ongoing. This is the way you're going to think, and this is what you're not to do. We'll get down to that passing judgment here in a second. So fill in the blank. You see we're not in the second part. Understand, understand how to view human examinations. Because what the Apostle Paul is going to do is he's going to start to break into... Um, a, 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 an argument that's gonna build down to verse five. So he says, But to me it's a very small thing that I may be examined to you. All right. So I've got to be faithful, but don't what he's basically saying is as we start to to look at how people evaluate, he goes, But it's a very small thing that I may be, in essence, judged by you. How dare you come and try to judge me? Now, this isn't the sense that Paul is in sin. This is the sense where the Apostle Paul recognizes that people are saying, we want Paul or we want Apollos. That one's better or that other one's better. The key is, is is the pastor faithful? Was Paul faithful? Was Apollos faithful to the word of God? Right. This isn't like we're talking about, hey, I want Pastor Mike or I want Benny Hinn. Okay. Benny Hinn, you should all know, false teacher, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, this is more, do we have someone that's faithful versus um, between two different faithful people and he's saying no you have to understand that this is the way you're supposed to think about them but ultimately even when you're evaluating them you're to say paul is saying my attitude my attitude is that it's trivial that you're to be judged by me and he goes verse three but to me it's a small thing that i may be examined by you or any human court in fact i do not even examine myself And so he gets into the fact like three types of judgments. So you could be like um, that I may be examined by you or even if somebody went into a courtroom and examined me. And I think he's just trying to get a broad spectrum or even I don't even examine myself. Now this isn't regarding in sin. This is like regarding his accomplishments. He recognizes ultimately that he recognizes that um, if somebody is going to find sin in his life if you saw sin in my life you should come to me absolutely but what he's in essence saying is we're talking about the results and and part of the challenge always even though you try not to is by a pastor is you're always trying to look for results is the auditorium filled is is are people coming do people want to hear you know are we bearing fruit and paul is saying look i've got to let these results be ultimately up to god and, and, and so that's why he's saying it's, it, from, from that perspective, it's a small thing. It was interesting. This week, I was at the conference, and my good friend, from when I was in seminary, Paul Felix and I were there. Um, Paul's daughter, some of you know, she's uh, the Olympic gold medalist. She's, she's won, I don't know, four or five gold medals. And Paul and I went to school together, and I knew the little girl before she even started running, okay? And Paul's been faithful down in central Los Angeles, and Paul and I were two of the better students, we'll put it this way, at, at Masters, and Paul got to be, like, used by um, the seminary to teach, because they wanted him to be able to reach the African-American pastors down in, in, in Los Angeles, and the African-American people, and, and so Paul, they put a lot of work and a lot of effort in Paul, and Paul went off to get his PhD, and, and Paul and I were talking about the fact that his struggles because here he is. He's one of the top students that the Masters, ever, Master's Seminary has ever produced. He's one of the smartest men, I think, in America. He's got his PhD, and he goes, Mike, he goes, I gotta tell you, sometimes it's so hard because I go and I teach Sunday school and I teach Bible study and there's only two people there. And he goes, it's just, it's hard. And if somebody would think I'm not being faithful, I'm not being very productive, you know, um, that still weighs on me. And he was telling me about one of his students. This guy was doing um, OK in Los Angeles. One of his students got, uh, friends was, and students and friends was ha- having a church in L.A, and they had like 300 people. And it was hard. It was in a tough part of Los Angeles but then he moved to Florida I think it was in Jacksonville and the church is 7,000 people now and he said the guy's not doing anything different 300 in LA 700 in Jacksonville what was the difference the ultimate difference was ultimately that God made that choice and that, that's the orientation, the reality we have to understand. That. So that's why when the apostle Paul says, it's to me a very small thing that I might be examined by you, that basically you, you're coming down with judgment. The word for examined is uh, uh, anacrino, a thorough judgment, and analysis. So when he says, takes it in the verse 4, he says, I'm conscious of nothing against myself. So he's recognizing that in his life, he recognizes that he's not in sin. Now, if a pastor was in sin, like I said, I went through that list of all those pastors this morning who have been caught in all kinds of adultery and all kinds of money laundering and manipulation of people. Absolutely, you come to them and you challenge them regarding their sin. But verse four says, "I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I'm not by this acquitted." And the word there for "therefore acquitted" is in the perfect passive. It's not like this. It's not. This is what's declaring me to be innocent, because ultimately. The one who examines me is the Lord. God's going to make the final decision. God knows how faithful Paul was. God knows how faithful I've been. God knows how faithful any pastor's been. Okay? Ultimately, that's what Paul is saying. So that's why the whole point is, understand, this is how to view human exams. Ultimately, you know, someone comes and says, you know, you're not as successful here at Christian Fellowship Church as this other guy would have been. Well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It's ultimately up to God. All right? All right? Um, who's going to know whether we even have fruit and how much reward we're having. But uh, th- what we need to understand is this next point. Understand the Lord's final exam is what matters. So you come to verse 5. Therefore, once we understand this, once we understand how to view how other people are looking at us, then, then we, become, we become people that are focused on the right thing. And how critical that is, because if you're focused on the wrong thing as a pastor or as a congregation, you get in trouble. And I ran across a really good illustration this week. Um, Those of you know, I got a chance to take a Sunday off. I went down to see the Indy 500. It's one of my favorite things in the world to do. Those cars go, whoa, whoa, and they make big noise, and they go around really fast. And it's absolutely stunning. I um, I told Josh, I couldn't get Josh to go with me, because he didn't want to go. And I said, when you see those cars, it's like seeing Carl Buffalo over the, over the um, plane. I mean, those things are amazing, how fast they're going. I think this year they averaged 230-some miles per hour, all right? And, and one of the famous IndyCar drivers of all time is Mario Andretti. And he offers this perspective on how to deal with criticism or his illustration is used for how to deal with criticism. And his perspective is this He says, When you're driving, and you're driving like an Indy 500, if you focus on the wall, that's what you run into. But when you drive, you're sort of drive and focus right ahead. And he goes, Whenever I get my view off and I focus on the wall, that's exactly where I run, and that's exactly where I hit. And this one author took that illustration and basically said, let me see if I can find it, he said this, he says, criticism and negativity from other people is like a wall. And if you focus on it, then you'll run right into it. You'll get blocked by negative emotions, anger, and self-doubt. Your mind will go where your attention is focused. Criticism and negativity don't prevent you from reaching the finish line, but they can certainly distract you from it. And so the Apostle Paul says, look, I've got to be worried about the finish line, and I've got to be worried about the final judgment, and that's what I want us to continue to do as a church. And so look at verse 5. He says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment, and that's a command. Isn't that interesting? You know, I think about all the things. You know, you're going to stand before God, and I thought about it this morning as I was preparing this message. I, was, I thought to myself, you know, when you face God, when you face God, and he's going to say, did you follow those two commands? you say what commands you know can you imagine you go to a church and and you weren't taught that these are commands that you have to obey well you were told that this is the way you are to think about your your leaders and this is the way you're not to think about them and the idea of passing final judgment is to determine the determine well this is a good pastor that's a bad pastor in the sense of oh he's successful he's not now again we're not talking about oh he's preaching the word he's not preaching the word We're talking about, like, looking at Paul Felix, who's in inner city L.A., and saying, boy, that guy's nothing but a failure. He's only got two people in his Sunday school class. I mean, you know, know, Paul's faithfully teaching the word of God. And uh, by the way, Paul said he's going to come out and preach here for me, and I'm looking forward to that, and then we're going to try and do something with his daughter. (laughs) She's got the Olympics next year. And then he said that um, she'll be free. She, I think this will be it for her. And um, he said that, uh, you know, if we can get her, maybe do some type of women's ministry or blah, 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 and maybe something into the schools. He said, but the problem is, he goes, Mike, I don't even get her in my church. So you'll get her after I get her. So, But I'm looking forward to that. And I, I, and I look at how God has given us this grace and these connections and these people that keep coming into our lives that want to help us. Because when I was there, I was with Tom Zobris. Um, Tom, father of um, oh, what's his name? Yeah, there's Zobris, Ben Zobras. Ben, and um, and so God just graciously has allowed us to have these connections in this world, and and so looking forward to having Paul Felix out. So verse five. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. What time? We're talking about the ultimate judgment time. That's what it is. So he says, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring, bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motive of men's hearts. Now, here, you know, this is all about don't pass judgment, but then there's like this whole side thought about the theology of how things are going to be examined. And so look at just as a second here, side note, the Lord will bring to light the things hidden in darkness. So everything and anything anyone ever does in darkness is gonna be found. And so, you know, um, i try to always keep that before me because anything i do god is with me there is nothing that you get away with and I I, I I try to always you know tell myself god sees everything and how that's freeing and how that is that is something that i want you to have that reality so i can see this is like an extra you know concept here other than the idea of not judging your leaders, but the idea is that God sees everything. And so maybe today you're struggling with something, and maybe you're struggling with temptation. One of the greatest things I think to help with temptation is that God sees everything. Because when you're feeling more pressure from temptation is when you think, no one's around. Everyone's in bed. No one can see what I'm doing. Well, no, God always sees. And if you always have that conscious awareness, God always sees then you're in good shape. And I'll tell you what, even from, though from a pastor's perspective, in a ministry perspective, it's good because if you're saying to yourself, this is, I'm doing what I'm doing, and I may not get the biggest results, God knows in faithfulness the choices I've made. So verse five, he's gonna bring the light things, uh, to things hidden in darkness and disclose the motive of men's hearts. Why did you do what you did? Well, I did it, you know, I, I did it for prestige. I did it for the, all the accolades. I know I, I, um, I did it so that people would give me a pat on the back. No. God knew that you were doing it because you wanted to honor Him. That you wanted to please Him in all respects. That's what God is calling us to do. But if you get involved, like, oh, I get involved in this ministry of the church, or I get in that, involved in that ministry, and you did it for your own reward... I mean, there are passages in Scripture that warn that, you know, you get man's accolades, that's your reward. You did what you did so that people would notice. Well, they noticed, that's your reward. Remember, all of this is in a context where God is telling us he's going to reward us for the gold, silver, precious stone work that we've done. And so be faithful. And so as I've seen in life, there are people that have been so good at their jobs and so faithful, but they've seen very little earthly results. So be it ultimately God's the one that's going to know why they did what they did. And if they did it with right motives, they will be greatly rewarded. So he says, then each man's praise will come to him from God. And that, and, and so there's the concept of well done, good and faithful servant, which we all want to hear. And, and this isn't saying that you can't have criticism. Just as, as a side note, I, I wrote this down and I said, um, remind the people of Psalm 141 verse 5, Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon the head. Do not let my head refuse it, the psalmist says, for still my prayer is against their wicked deeds. And he's talking about the fact that sometimes if people come and they bring criticism, it's good and we should receive it. So this passage isn't saying that you don't receive criticism and a pastor doesn't receive criticism. Never above hearing someone say, boy, I don't think you did there was right. That's not what this is about. But this is about saying, hey, I've got a faithful guy and, and God needs to recognize that all we have to recognize that ultimately how thumbs up or thumbs down on a person in their ministry and their faithfulness will ultimately come from God not by the numbers and the number of people that they that they um influence okay so then because you look at that last line he says then each man's praise will come to him from God and and so when Paul says earlier he says I don't even examine myself I'm conscious of nothing against myself he's he is aware of no sin in his life, but hopefully he knows that his motivations were right. And and sometimes, you know, you say to yourself, well, I, I know what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. Well, hopefully everything you know why you're doing it is biblical. And some are using excuses for why they do nothing, that your excuses aren't biblical, because we're supposed to serve. And, and as our dear brother Lou Clark has always said, service is often inconvenient. And so I want you to be people who are challenging yourself why you're doing what you're doing, and do you really serve, okay? But I ran across this story. I thought that this would be a real good challenge. I th- this, is, this is a true story. It's found uh, um, about a man named Dennis Lee Curtis. He was a robber. And he was captured in 1992 in Rapid City, South Dakota. And when they, they found him, the police arrested him, and they went through his stuff. They found this piece of paper in his wallet. And how this comes up is that this is the man's motivation for why he did what he, how he was going to be a robber. Now, listen to this. This is tr- a true story. This is what they found in his wallet. He said, these are my robbing rules, robber's rules. Number one, I will not kill anyone unless I have to. Number two, I will take cash and food stamps, but no checks. I will only rob at night. I will not wear a mask, because probably you scare people. I don't want to put fear in the people. I will not rob mini-marts or 7-Eleven stores. In essence, those guys work so hard, I don't want to take their money. If I get chased by cops on foot, I will get away. If chased by a vehicle, I will not put the lives of innocent people on the line. You like this, robber? I will only rob seven months out of the year. I don't know why the other five off. I will enjoy robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. This guy has a sense of morality. But listen, it was flawed. When he stood before the court, he was not judged by the standards he had set for himself, but by the higher law of the state, right? Likewise, when we stand before God, we will not be judged by the code of morality we have written for ourselves, but by God's written law. And, and I want us to understand that last line, each man's praise will come to him from God, because that's exactly what you are to be thinking about. So big picture here, how to think about church leaders. You regard them as servants of Christ, stewards of God's word. How are they handling the mysteries of God? Don't pass judgment saying this is a good guy, that's a bad guy, who's faithfully working. Wait for God. And then recognize this is for yourself. Obviously, there's application here, okay? And, you, and so you say, well, you're telling me how to like a pastor. Right, exactly how I'm telling you to take a Pepsi, Pepsi taste test. A Pepsi taste test, like, drink it. Drink more than two ounces, you know? Drink the entire can if you necessary. Swirl it around, but come to a right conclusion. And that's what God is saying here. Come to a right conclusion. And when you do this and you understand it, you don't fight over your pastor, you don't fight over your elders and Bible teachers. What you do is you make the church stronger. And that's my prayer, that our church is strong. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you want us to have this understanding. Amazing that even in the first century, a church was fighting over their leaders. But God, I recognize on a Sunday morning, there are so many things that are going on in people's lives. Maybe a a husband and wife are fighting. Maybe children are being disobedient. Maybe someone is really weighing heavy with some temptation they have. Oh God, I just pray that they come to an understanding through different aspects of this passage of things that can help them. But I recognize my role, my responsibility, teach a passage in context and teach it for its meaning. And I pray, Lord, that our people grasp the significance of this. And no matter where they are, what they go through, that they'll never settle for anything less so that they grasp and know what you want from your faithful stewards. In Jesus' name, amen.